The following Dharma talk was given by Jody Hojin Kimmel at the Zen Center of New York City. Hojin Sensei is the abbot of the Zen Center and head priest at Zen Mountain Monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmm.org slash zcnyc. Thanks for listening. Good morning, everyone. Today's talk will be from The Hidden Lamp, a collection of women's enlightenment stories. Senjo and her soul are separated. But first, it's nice to be back in the city. Um, I've been at the monastery. I go um, for one week each month for session, which is a week-long silent intensive. And I stayed a little longer because we do a big community Thanksgiving. And um, so I'm grateful, very grateful to be sort of a country mouse and a city mouse, mostly a city mouse. Um, and I got to spend time with my sangha up there and my Dharma brother Yukon, who has um, had a brain tumor um, discovered in September and went through radiation and chemotherapy and now is in, as we all are just in our everyday lives doing our living and dying moment to moment um, in various ways um, spending time with him was great and um, nice to see so many new people here as well really thank you for coming and um I picked a koan today, which I think you'll be accessible for you. And the koan goes like this. Goso asked a student, Senjo and her soul are separated. Which is the true one? That's it. So this koan is also in two other collections, the Mumen Khan, Case 35, and also the Blue Cliff Record. So these are collections that uh, a student will study with sometimes in their Zen training. A koan is translated as a public case. Um, they're on tea bags now, um, so I think most of us are familiar with them, maybe even cereal boxes. Um, but they're teaching stories to show us the nature of reality. They're not riddles, they're not games. But there are encounters between people working within the truth of what is, what truly is. And they often uh, show us how we fall into our dualistic mind, our discriminations, or we try to stay with our knowing about something, or our intellect, like we might cover things with our intellect and we understand, but we don't actually embody what we understand. And so that's why we need a teacher to work with them so they can sort of poke around. And if we go, a student goes to one side, the teacher will say, well, present this side or the vice versa. So you can't really do them alone. You have to work. And this comes down through generations working on these koans with teachers that go back centuries, the same ones. 
Buddha had his own koans. It was very different. They didn't have collections yet. But in Zen, they're used in a very formalized way, as I said, um, in working with a teacher. And so two accomplished teachers, Mumon and, um, gosh, his name was suddenly, what's the guy from the Blue Cliff record? What? Yan Ryu is one name. Yeah, I'll get to it. They both thought that this was important enough to bring this koan forward, and then it was picked up in the hidden lamp, the collection of women's enlightenment stories. And then through the centuries, added to the koan were commentaries and poems to help elucidate the main point within it. Okay? So again, Goso asked a student... Now, Seijo is the Chinese name. Senjo is the Japanese translation. I'll use Senjo and her soul are separated, which is the real one. So we need to know this story, which is a Chinese folk tale. But before I get to that, I would like to tell you a little about Master Goso. Um, but I would, and before that... <laughs> I would like to tell you the rest of the comment and the verse. So Mumun's comment on Goso asked the student, Senju and her soul are separated, which is the real one. The comment says, when you realize what the real is, you will see that we pass from one husk to another, like, uh, like travelers stopping for a night's lodging. But if you do not realize it yet, I earnestly advise you not to rush about blindly. When earth, water, fire, and air suddenly decompose, you will be like a crab struggling in boiling water with its seven or eight arms and legs. When that happens, don't say I didn't warn you. The verse, the moon above the clouds is ever the same. Valleys and mountains are different from each other. All are blessed. All are blessed. Are they one or are they two? So this koan is short, and it's called a nanto koan. There's a few nanto koans, which are koans that are difficult to pass through. And um, these Nanto koans, again, have come down through generations where a student may be going along and suddenly they hit this one and they're stuck. I can remember my teacher held me on one for a year, a year, a full year, seeing them every week. I couldn't break through, couldn't get through. (sighs) Anyway, Goso was from Mount Goso. So often teachers are named after their mountain. So Shugen is really Tenkozan. Tenko is our mountain, mountain of heavenly light, Mount Tremper. His other name is Hoen, is Japanese translation. And he's making a statement to his Sangha and asks us a question. Senjo and her soul are separated. Which is the real one? Now, let me tell you a little bit about Master Goso and why he brings this up for us today and why I'm bringing it up for us today. He was ordained rather late in life. 
he was 35. So <laughs> that was considered late. Most monastics were ordained when they were like 9, 10, 11, something like that. So he was 35. And um, he was a scholar monk, very brilliant, studied and um, under many different lectures, but it said he couldn't find peace of mind for all that he knew. He couldn't find peace of mind. And he said that he brought many hundreds of sutras to China. And while he was studying Buddhist texts, he came upon this quote. It said that when a bodhisattva sees with the wisdom eye, functioning and principle are one. Functioning and principle are one. Circumstances and essence are one. Objectivity and subjectivity are one. But a non-Buddhist philosopher argued, if subjectivity and objectivity are not separated, how can that fact itself be proved? And the Buddhist scholar Genjo responded, it is like when one drinks and knows for oneself whether the water is cold or warm. So this is a famous saying in Zen, knows for oneself knows for oneself, that you know for yourself. You know for yourself. And so he decided to find out, go and find a good teacher. And after going there, he finally, here and there, he finally settled with, now this is Haku-un, not Haku-in. Haku-un. Haku-un Shuntan Zenji. And one day he was really engrossed in this koan, and he overheard Haku-un, uh, instructing another monastic about Mu, and probably using the um, compassion stick, the Kiyosako, probably telling, you know, instructing him with Mu and egging him on to see this koan. In any case, whatever he was saying penetrated into Goso very deeply and into his heart, and he woke up to something about his nature, right, in that moment. And he taught for about 40 years. And among his disciples was Engo Secho, who was the compiler of the Blue Cliff Record. That's who I was looking for. And um, one day when he was about eight years old, he said to his monastics, it's time for me to retire, which means die. <laughs> he took a bath, shaved, sat down, and died. We don't know for sure if that's how it happened, but there's many stories where masters knew that. And they would write a death poem, and then they would die. And I think some of us and people we know also know that. It's not like you have to be a Zen master, but I'm sure if you're meditating a lot and you have this sense of yourself, you maybe can know that, like it's coming soon. And um, before he died, he said to his monastics, Senjo's soul separated from her being, which is the real Senjo. So this is, as I said, a Chinese folk tale brought into the Zen literature. literature. So we're here to maybe find out what does this ghost tale from the Tang Dynasty have to do with you, have to do with me. And personally, I've always been enthralled and resonant with this tale. So here's the story. 
Senjo was the beloved daughter of Chokan, and in childhood she played with her cousin Ochu, or they were good friends. And Senjo's father jokingly told them that they were betrothed, betrothed, that they were like a, acting a married couple. They were so close. And they believed him, and they were in love. And later in life, they continued to be falling in love. And then one day, her father told her he had selected another groom, and she would marry another man, and they were heartbroken. Ochu left the village in a boat before the marriage. And as he left, he saw a figure running alongside the riverbank calling to him. It was Senjo, who was equally upset. Joyfully, she joined him, and they traveled far away, where they married and had two children. Many years went by, five or so, and Senjo longed to see her parents and asked their forgiveness. And, you know, often, a lot of times, if we leave and then we have children and we do part from our parents, maybe there wasn't closure. After you have kids, sometimes things happen, I know, with people that they want to return. They want to ask for forgiveness. They want to reconcile. So she was feeling that, and so was he. So they traveled back to the village, and Ochu got out of the boat, went up to her father, and told him the story of what happened with them and apologized for them both. Chokan, the father, was astonished and, and asked Ochu, what girl are you talking about? He said, your daughter, Senjo, replied Ochu. Chokan said, my daughter, Senjo, ever since you left, she's been ill in bed, hasn't even spoken is unable to get up. She, he said, no, Sen- Senjo's in the boat. I'll bring her up to meet you. So Ochu brought Senju up from, Senjo up from the boat, and as they approached her father's door, Senju, who had been sick, got out of bed, smiling, and when the two Senjos met, they merged into one. So that's the tale. That's the story. In 1990s, early 1990s, we had a kids program, and Dido, my teacher, recreated this story for the kids. He was portraying the forest wizard. Um, Dido liked to take on different roles and characters, so he dressed up like this wild forest wizard, And the kids were staying for the weekend, and we built up this whole story about this wizard that lived up in this hut. And we got dry ice and everything, so it was all smoky. And Dido was this big guy, and always wore like army fatigues, and you know, he's all, and he walked down the center with this dry ice, and the kids were like, (gasps) you know, they were all up front like you, gathered around, because he was going to tell a story. And he changed their name to Mountain Dew and Running Pine, gave them sort of like mountain names. So he told the same story. 
And then he asked them, which is the real one? Which is the real one? And I remember this little girl, Samantha. Well, the, and she's talking with her hand. And then, and Dida went like, you do better than a lot of my students. <laughs> anyway, the story uses the word soul, in the ko- and so does the koan. And so soul, um, Webster says, is the immaterial essence, animating principle, or, actuate, or actuating cause of an individual life thought by some to be a kind of permanent essence that survives death. But Buddhism doesn't take up there being explicitly an essence, something there, a soul of some kind, or any kind of permanent thing about the self. So perhaps in this story we can, from a Zen perspective, it's in the Zen literature, we could use the word self rather than soul. Senjo is separated from herself. Where can she find her real self? Don't we feel that way sometimes? Divided from ourself. Where do we find the true self when we feel divided? Goso is asking about the Senjo that ran away and the Senjo that's in bed, sick. Which is the real self? The one who got angry and snapped at someone or the one who is so loving and grateful? There's a a story that I read. um, I have it. Oh, no. I left it upstairs. Oh, here it is. Okay. I was listening to a talk by Thani Sarabhiku, um, a Theravadan monastic, and he had this story which reminded me of this koan. And he mentions a book in this talk called The Gate. I had to look it up by Francois Bizot. Do you know this? So Francois Bizot is a French anthropologist, um, and he was wor- while working as a conservationist in Cambodia, he was held captive by the Khmer Rouge for several months. And like most of the people who the Khmer Rouge had imprisoned, he was probably destined to die. Um, but there was one idealistic member of the Khmer Rouge, a young man, a young cadre, who said, look, we're trying to build a just society here. This man is not a spy. They thought he was a spy. He's not doing anything evil. Why should we imprison him? And so he fought very hard, and he got his superiors to free Bizot. So Bizot eventually is able to get out of Cambodia. This is a true story. Becoming the only Westerner to survive imprisonment by the Khmer Rouge. And then years after the Cameroos were finally driven from power, he went back and discovered that this young idealistic cadre who had helped free him ended up being the person in charge of the killing fields. And he'd arranged all the ways of torturing and killing people, 
millions of people, which is the real self, the one who freed Bizeau, or the one who arranged all this killing, who is the true self, which is the real one. So we need this story of Senju and her soul to have it make some sense. And many koans lead us astray because immediately it sets up a choice, which is the real one. means there's one that's not real. So immediately we're in a duality. The wife, the daughter, the one who ran away, the one who stayed home. Could there be two different selves? So it sets up a dualistic view as though there could be. And that's what a lot of koans do. And we fall right into the, right into the bunker. <laughs> when, what Buddha realized when he was enlightened is that there was no self, as we, most of us think about it as some fixed, permanent thing, much less two different ones, <laughs> And from this point of view, he saw the self was empty of anything inherently fixed or permanent, that it couldn't really be located, having one, not having one. It's not what we think. What is it? So if we turn to Mumon's commentary to help us, he says, If, if, the big if, if you are enlightened to what is the real is, then you will see that we pass from one husk to another like travelers putting up in hotels. But if you do not realize it yet, I earnestly advise you not to rush about wildly, blindly or wildly, When earth, water, fire, and air suddenly do compose, you will be like a crab struggling in boiling water with its seven or eight arms and legs. Do not say then, I didn't warn you. If you are enlightened to what is real, you will see that we pass from one husk to another like travelers putting up in hotels. So what's Mumon doing here? He's helping us by saying... He's using the metaphor of travelers or guests being put up in hotels. That's us. That's how our, our life is. How it might appear to be different selves in different periods of time. He quoting him, these different versions of us are like the different hotel rooms we enter at leave and leave at different times and places. But the question we need to answer is, who or what is it that enters and leaves? Where is the self that is not the same from moment to moment? Could it be the self is the changing moment? Could it be? that the self is each changing moment. 
that it has no permanent existence apart from the circumstances of time and place where we find ourselves. The commentary begins, if you are enlightened to what is real, what is the experience of being enlightened to? We've all had that. We've all been enlightened to something. It's not like, you know, the 4th of July. It's like you're not ignorant anymore. Something breaks through. There's light out of darkness, out of the darkness of ignorance. We all have it, or you would keep going. You wouldn't have gotten here if you hadn't had some light burst through. One commenter said, it's really experienced the non-dual nature of this, this, right here. Duality of self and other, subject and object, true and false, one and two. The experience of seeing that our true nature is beyond oneness and multiplicity. Is it one or is it two? Is it or isn't it? Did you fall in? Again? I did. We often say there are two aspects to our nature. One is the dualistic, relative, or phenomenal side. How we are in the world. That's our relative life. Where we have birth and death. We have coming and going, good and evil. And the karma of change, discrimination, and differentiation. That's the relative. The other we call the absolute side of our nature. Where there's no change, no differentiation. The unconditional. And usually it's only said in the negative, like we chanted in the Heart Sutra. No eye, ear, nose, no, no, no. There's like 29 no's in the Heart Sutra. Only to say, yes, yes, yes. But there's no's, so we don't go to the negative. And then, what is over and above? What do we call that? You could think of it as a quarter. You can't separate heads from tails. You can't separate absolute from... You can look at one side and you can look at the other, but it's, it's one reality. It's a quarter. You can't take it, separate them. They're mutually arising, codependent. But we can look at one side and we can look at the other, but we can't take them apart. That's us, right? So to realize our true self, we need to leap free of tunis and one... Did I say tuna fish? No. Tunis and this oneness. And the real self turns out to be no self at all. Not how we would think of it. Hakuin, Hakuin said, this self is no self. Moving. One commenter says, each moment is vividly present, but when it is gone, it is gone. It's only us that drags it around due to our attachments and our grasping, the past, the future. When it's gone, it's gone. 
our experience streams along moment after moment beyond this coming and going of each moment. There is nothing permanent. He's saying there is no permanent, unchanging self. So this hotel question points to a larger question of life and death, sometimes described as leaving one husk and passing into another. Like in like life is a husk, and we leave it upon our death. We step out of that husk, out of that hotel. But what is the husk of death? Then what do we step into? What is it that dies? Is there anything that does not die? Remember the last of the five remembrances is my only true possession is my actions. So if we think that we have a permanent self, we will cling to that self. We're going to try and defend it, protect it, and get a lot of stuff for it. And we can see in our own cultures a very widespread denial of death. On the other hand, as a practitioner, it's to be intimately concerned to see through the delusion of self And it begins right in working with the breath, the instruction you got. Thought is born. If we don't grasp it, it, it's gone. Dies. Birth and death. Just We see it right there, the illusion. But if we grab it, we keep the whole thing going. Right? Letting go of the stream of thought and the narratives that reify, fix a sense of self. Sometimes when we get settled, we jump in our zazen. I'm here. I exist. I've got to feel my clothing. Something. So hard to release that hold. Daido used to say, at birth, not a single atom comes into being. At death, not a single atom departs. I remember going to a funeral of my friend, Tracy, and everyone was saying, I was new to being monastic. I was just ordained. I didn't know top from bottom, really. And everyone was like, where did Tracy go? Where did Tracy go? And I was just like, oh, she's a monk. She'll know. And I was just like, no. And all these people started coming at me. And I remember I, I, I was doing my best, you know, to do what I could. And I was very, like, churned up about that. And when I got back, I said to Dido Roshi, everyone was asking me, like, where did Tracy go? Where did Tracy go? I remember we were walking, and he said to me, you know, you get that smile, he gets that grin, he goes, where do you find the self, Hojin? I was like, okay, back to my cushion. Sometimes it takes a long time to understand, but we stay with it. So Dharma teachings on the nature of self pervade this story, as we can see, actions of body, mouth, and thought. And when they're based on ignorance or the belief of a separate self, it will create more and more conditions for our suffering. 
So when we practice, specifically sitting still in zazen, we can reunite, we can merge, not only with a lost self of flowing energy, but with our buoyancy, our compassionate concern for ourselves and others. And also we gain a fuller appreciation for the shadow side and our delusions, all of it, when we sit still. So in the commentary, it says, if, if you are enlightened to the truth of this koan, then you will have seen through the delusion of self and you will accept the coming of going of life and death. When we do sit down, and when we start practice, and maybe for a while in our practice, we're still trying to get rid of something and deny something. These shadowy aspects, we just don't, we just don't want certain things about ourselves, And we just, we learn to be like the moon. We just stay facing, just to receive the fruits of that, of the practice of that, the blessing from a ghost, the blessing from a shadow, a reprieve from our pounding at ourselves. And right from the get-go, we do hear in the teachings about this emptiness of a separate self. It's right there in beginning instruction that we are ungraspable, we are non-abiding, And we keep seeing that more and more clearly. Little by little, we start to relieve our suffering. That's why some people come to practice in great suffering. And then after a couple years of practice, it starts to lift. And it's like, why practice? So we got to get new spark plugs. The original spark plug may be dead. And now we need a new spark plug. What's the new spark plug? As our suffering, and we start to see through our delusion, which is the true self. Comes to rest. So Mumon presents the opposite side. Thankfully, in case you're not yet enlightened, having not seen through the self, or little bits coming, Don't rush blindly and wildly. Don't rush. Don't judge. That's never a good practice, to rush about blindly, to judge ourselves. I've been, how many years have I been practicing and I still, I still, forget about it. Throw away the measuring sticks. Just practice. He knows the likelihood that we'll be panicked at the time of our death if we have not seen through the nature of the self. Because we're panicked now. So be patient and constant, and that will bring a lot to our process. And that's what I see in Yukon, all his years of practice. It's hard. Many of you have probably seen somebody just struggling to recover. We don't know what. Who is it? What's the real one? We don't know. But his practice is coming through. 
really strong, just as he meets what's in front of him. And every word out of his mouth is, love you, love you, and then, fuck. (laughs) (laughs) To us, love you, love you, and then, fuck, when he has to, like, meet something. It's beautiful. He says, Mumon says, when earth, water, fire, and air suddenly decompose, you will be like a crab struggling in boiling water with its seven, eight arms and legs. Yeah. It's a strong image. Um, The four elements are the substances the ancients believe composed the whole universe, just like the altar here contains, so we're reminded we have fire, air, the incense, the water. There's a water offering bowl. The earth is the um, flowers. And space, the fifth element. So the altering and then images. So that are you, that are each one of us. So nothing is left out. The altar reminds us nothing is left out. Everything is included here. Nothing outside ourselves in Zen liturgy. There's got, Buddha was not a god. So this is a vivid image. And when he says, what then happens, when that happens, don't say I didn't warn you. So he's validating what the teachings of the lifetime have been teaching us. Take care of this great matter. Practice. See. This great matter is the great matter in the teachings is the great matter of life and death. Clarifying what it is. This is a path you've stepped onto that you're investigating, especially if you're new, to see if it helps you clarify yourself your true self. He wants us to do this while we still have time. Every teacher does. Muman's verse. The moon above the clouds is ever the same, or ever the same, the moon among the clouds. So you picture that. You've all seen it. The moon among the clouds. So is ever the same. So that's pointing to that absolute nature of ours that we talked about. The absolute reality is always the same, whatever phase it's in. If it's a sickle moon to the full moon, it's still complete all along. However the clouds may appear different, however different they may appear from each other, their basic nature is the same, undifferentiated, uncharacteristic, empty of anything fixed. So he's describing the reality of the self, young and old, sick or well, you or me, this basic nature we call the Buddha nature, this absolute way of looking at things. Different from each other, the mountain and the valley. The relative view. You and I are the same thing from that first perspective. But from this perspective, 
I'm not you and you're not me. Isn't that wonderful? (laughs) That's so good. Who would want to, we don't want to be clones. It's so beautiful, all the differences. We just, we can't get it. We can't honor that. God, have we messed that up. Oh my God. What's always been true. So, we can look at them as being inseparable, as I said. Form is emptiness. Form is exactly emptiness. Emptiness is exactly form. Right? Right there. All are blessed. All are blessed. Muman says, how wonderful, how blessed. Perfect, just as it is from any point of view. It's true. From any point of view, it's true. Perfect from the absolute, perfect from the relative. And as Suzuki Roshi says, he shows both sides, we're perfect, as the Buddha said, we're perfect and complete, lacking nothing, and we can all use a lot of work. So he presents us both sides. Are they one or are they two? Are we one or are we two? Perfect and complete, needing a little work. And in the tradition, we have this diamond net of Indra image. It's a large net showing all of our interconnectedness. And at every intersection, there's a diamond. There's an artist, Yosama, who creates these rooms like the diamond net of Indra showing that we're all connected and have an effect. You know, they use that example of if a butterfly flaps its wings in France, we feel the air move here. So every action that everyone takes, it's all connected. It's all moving together. Thich Nhat Hanh calls it interbeing. So even to see that something which we might sit, consider low on the sentient scale, like a bug, for some of us, a flower, a tree, a spider, is no different from oneself. And that takes a special kind of seeing, which takes more than an act of the imagination. It's really a way of being, a way of seeing. And this then makes us have reverence. You can't help it for every single thing in the universe. Nothing left out. It's not hard once you see it. It's hard before because there's things that, that stop us up. It doesn't mean, I'm not talking about, you don't have boundaries and all that. Not that. You can still see in a particular way. And there's things that people have, good and evil, that we fight for in different ways. One comment, oh, so Goso asked a student, Sanjo and her soul are separated. Which is the true one? Like Senjo, 
All of our feelings and experiences are us. We are not them, but they are us. We are always whole at every moment. Like Senjo, all the conventional elements of the story mirror the situations we go through. One commentator writes, we may have grown up in circumstances where we had little agency, where familial, religious, cultural, gender, and social pressures were strong, and where meeting the prevailing expectations were more important than anything else. I distinctly remember in my life where it seemed to be required that I divide myself into parts, and I did, to survive. (laughs) And some of the parts were fine and some were not. But I was divided. Sometimes I feel, I notice um, in one place, and I'm not in another, and there's this, like, I'm not there, I'm here, like going to the monastery. So I can stay divided. Oh, I wish I was at the temple while I'm at the monastery. Divided. So when I'm there, I'm there. When I'm here, I am here. There's no division. And like Senjo, many of us have experienced great love, great loss, great disappointment, and tried to relieve our pain unskillfully resulting in feeling distanced and divided from ourself, from our lively self. And like the two Senjos, unaware of each other, one sick and drained of energy in bed, unable to speak, the other active, a wife, a mother, plagued by lack of closure, separation, contradiction, longing to be whole, for something real and connected, which is the true Senjo, the true you. So taking refuge in sitting down and stopping is peace itself. It's peace itself even if we haven't realized who we are completely. I don't know that any of us will completely, but could get pretty far along. We practice it as realization itself, just where we are. And there, in that, you've made it home. You've stopped the divide. The moment you let go and come back to your breath and be that breath, you're home. That's what's happening. I'll end with a verse that Shugen Roshi wrote on my Roksu. All things are reality, thusness. All things are reality, thusness means this very momentness. All things are reality thusness, mind thusness, sadness and joy thusness, cloud and rain thusness.
That's it. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To find out more about the Zen Center of New York City's programs, retreats and residency, please visit our website at zmm.org slash zcnyc.